Thank you, Richard. That's very kind. Can, can everyone hear me? This, this, this works. Very good. Um, people my age are supposed to have PowerPoint and things like that, but I'm afraid I've gone right out the other end and, and I go all, all natural these days. Um, but I do uh, believe in handing around books, and so I brought one of mine because I'm going to talk about it. Um, I've handed this around to a similar audience before, so some of you have seen it before, but that's okay. I'm going to talk about a, a very kind of scientific revolution book here. Um, much of which originates in this library. Um, but I'll hand it around so that people can get the feel of a nice 1660s folio. Um, this is a book I'll mention in, in a little while. I've been obsessed with this book since I was an undergraduate. It, it was the attempt by the warden of, of Wadham, John Wilkins, to write a completely artificial language that the scientists of the future will converse in. And, and it's, it's a beautiful Janus-formed project because in one sense it embodies a rather optimistic sense that, that the, was, was present in the 1660s that we can really do this kind of thing and we're, we're onto something new. But at the same time, it's actually a desperately conservative attempt to classify all of reality in an extremely Aristotelian way. Um, so it's a book that looks in both directions. Um, for bibliographers amongst you, um, Wilkins actually paid to have his own type cut that looks a bit like Syriac, which is his way of, of expressing this new language. And it even includes something that I might touch on later, which is a page of um, the first large piece of Chinese published in, in English. I was sitting with um, Sinologist in, in the library recently, looking through the papers of Bodley's librarian in the late 17th century, and there was this, this um, thing that was marked Lord's Prayer, and I was reading down it, and I suddenly realized it, it was the same text as this one, and that the underlying papers of this were burnt in the Great Fire of London, and there I was looking at another version that had swum Bodley and Way. Um, so this book here is a kind of box of coincidences in meetings for me, and if you get bored listening to me, or if you've been up for as long as I have on May morning, um, then you can pass this one around and have a look at it. Um, please don't be shy about it. It's a tough object. It's lasted much longer than I have. Okay, today I'm going to talk for about half an hour about the Bodleian Library and the scientific revolution. In late February 1652, Seth Ward of Wadham College wrote to a friend in the country about the new scientific spirit that was gripping Ward and his friends in Interunium Oxford. What's striking about Ward's account is how he and his friends thought of the new science as a combination of doing experiments and reading books in the Bodleian Library. And this is what he promised to his friend they were about to do. For what concerns our club, which consists of about 30 persons, we have, everyone taking a portion, gone over all or most of the heads of natural philosophy and mixed mathematics, collecting only a history of the phenomena out of such authors as we have in our library, and sometimes trying experiments, as we had occasion and opportunity. Our first business is to gather together such things as are already discovered, and to make a book with a general index of them. That that I'm passing around is a book with a general index of these things. Therefore, we have conceived it requisite to examine all the books of our public library, everyone taking his part, and to make a catalogue or index of the matter, and that very particularly in philosophy, physics, mathematics, and indeed in all other faculties. Well, this fascinating letter shows us that for a brief period into the in, in the interregnum, the famous generation of men around Oxford in the 1650s, we might think of John Wilkins, Robert Boyle, Thomas Willis, John Wallace, 
and many other founding members of the Royal Society of London, believed that they might reduce the Bodleian to a kind of classified dictionary of human knowledge. Ward even thought they'd be finished with all the Bodleian's books by the end of Hillary term. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, all the Bodleian's books gutted and summarized into one digest in fewer than two months. Ward and his fellow clubmen failed to produce their Oxonian key to all sciences. But it does occur to me that something not dissimilar towards projected compendium with index was in the event published by John Wilkins, but in London, after the restoration and after the founding of the Royal Society. This was Wilkins' famous essay towards a real character and a philosophical language of 1668, his attempt to classify reality as perceived by the rational mind and to fit to his tables a new philosophical language. His work was accompanied by an index to the classified volume. Ward and his abstractors in Commonwealth Oxford, ripping through the Bodleian stock, did find expression then, but in a restoration London publication. Now, I open upon this anecdote to illustrate a basic point of my short talk. Socially and geographically, the scientific revolution as experienced in British culture was neither an academic nor a metropolitan phenomenon, but one involving moments of drift and exchange between the universities and the metropolis of London, as well as other centers. One advantage of keeping this aspect always before us is that we will be less inclined to assume that the scientific revolution is something that happened in spite of the universities and in spite of a culture of reading as opposed to experimenting. Rather than a model of radical breaks here, it is better to think about this period in terms of principles of transformation and exchange. And when we do this, Oxonian culture regains its just historical significance. And today, I shall focus on a few Oxford institutions centered around the Bodleian and, I would argue, institutions which are constitutive of the British scientific revolution. The Bodleian of the later 17th and early 18th centuries is usually regarded as a place of administrative discord. This is the generation of miserable old Thomas Hearn. And as a place of science, it's usually contrasted rather than combined with what were at that point architecturally contiguous institutions, the Ashmolean Museum, and the library and lecture rooms of the civilian chairs in astronomy and geometry. And it's on these two institutions that I want to focus for a moment. The first point to emphasize is that the Bodleian differed in degree rather than in kind from its two contiguous and more obviously scientific neighbors. The civilian lectureships in geometry and astronomy, these are founded in 1619, were endowed with and subsequently augmented a shared library in the room that connected their two lecturing spaces in the east range of the Bodleian Quadrangle. It's what's now the issue desk in the lower reading room. This is a range that in architectural terms was grown out of rather than against the original library. Now it's likely that the students never had very much of a hands-on access to the Savile books, but they did have some access to the 16 mathematical instruments that were owned by 1697 by the professors. Indeed, if you read the statutes of the civilian professor of geometry, he's instructed to take his students for walks out into the local Oxford countryside and teach them how to use surveying equipment. 
Conversely, the Ashmolean Museum, which is opened in 1683, developed two distinct working libraries. The first is a well-known library. It's the Library of Natural History and Philosophy. It's general, quite large working library. But the second one that's not so much spotted today is that downstairs in the basement, next to the enormous furnaces, there was a smaller library, the Chemical Library. Um, and about, oh, I may be 32 or so of these books still survive today. You can tell them when you come across them because they have Bibliotheca Chimica written on, on the front of them and, and various donation inscriptions. I had hoped they would be spattered with early chemicals, um, but I haven't managed to nail that one just yet. By the turn of the century, the civilian library numbered about 800 generically focused volumes and at least 50 manuscripts. And many of these printed books were from the donations of Christopher Wren and John Wallace, who both held chairs. And you can usually tell most of them because they, they have particular patterns on the spines that show you um, where they came from. Wallace, we may recall, held his chair for over five decades, which is quite something. He, he takes up the civilian chair in 1649, and he finally dies in 1703, I think, doesn't he? Not, not before time. Um, Wallace, we must remember as well, was keeper of the university archives from 1658, so he's right at the center of Oxford life for rather a long time. But the Ashmolean Library, even at this point, dwarfs the civilian collections, numbering almost 3,000 very much more miscellaneous books alongside the 1,800 odd manuscripts in the care of the keeper. And the first keeper, of course, is simultaneously the first professor of chemistry, Robert Plott. A great number of these manuscripts are antiquarian manuscripts, a strange thing for a kind of chemical laboratory, but something I'll return to. So the public library, upstairs, therefore, is a stone's throw, not even that, on either side from collections totaling well over 5,000 volumes. And it's this contiguity of Oxford libraries, which I think is often a neglected piece of Oxford intellectual history. The second point to emphasize here, conversely, is that the Bodleian itself had another function as a museum in the period. From the beginning, it had collected coins, paintings, objects of natural history, as well as books. And indeed, many of its oriental books remained objects to be admired rather than read until knowledge of the relevant scripts reached Oxford. In time, these collections were split between Duke Humphreys and the anatomy school, and it was the job of the assistant to conduct tours of the latter for a fee. This is how Thomas Hearn made his pocket money. There, visitors could examine a hodgepodge of natural, anatomical, artificial rarities, ranging from, and here I'm going to quote from Thomas Hearn's own hand list, uh, fossils, skeletons, miniature writing, carved hieroglyphs, a mummy, a Chinese printed book, Wingate's arithmetical tables, an entire shark, a dead pygmy, locks, whips, gloves, a witch's nipple, and a pin vomited up by Alexander Rostorn's daughter near Armskirk in Lancashire. <laughs> and finally, two artificial tortoises. When Thomas Hearn catalogued the collection in 1705, it contained 275 exhibits and 67 coins. By 1713, the collections had grown to 415 items and a further 130 coins. Perhaps we should take Hearn's words with a pinch of salt when he stated that John Keel, the civilian professor of geometry, declared the anatomy school's collection better than that in the elaboratory, in other words, the Ashmolean uh, Museum. But such a claim underlines the perceived continuum in the period between the functions of the Bodleian Library and the Ashmolean Museum. 
Returning to textual collections, though, Duke Humphreys also saw structural expansion in this period. In the 1590s, galleries were run east-west above the existing presses. Law books were placed on the north side, towards Blackwell's, while on the south side, um, Bishop Barlow's bequest was shelved up there, marked Link. That's the, the shelf marks still survive, Dürer and Link, but they don't mean anything spatially as they once did. The new shelving was also used, importantly though, for the dumping of accessions that had nothing to do with either law on one side or Barlow on the other. If you're handling a book shelf mark link, unless it's very low in the alphabetic series, up to somewhere in the middle of C, it's not one of Barlow's books, regardless of what the computer's programmed to tell you. Various names manuscript collections were then placed in these new galleries. And the one I want to mention here is the manuscript collections of John Greaves, the sometime civilian professor of astronomy, another sinew binding together the civilian and the Bodleian enterprises. Just here, I, I want to mention one of the most wonderful manuscripts in, in the um, Savile manuscripts that, that was um, connected with Greaves himself, is that um, in the 1630s, he um, went out to Egypt, um, and he got on a camel and learned, so they say, Turkish and then some Arabic, in other, uh, in other words, enough language to get as far as the pyramids. And when he got to the pyramids, Oxonian as he was, he took out his notebook and started drawing hieroglyphs into it. They survive upstairs in pencil. And the manuscripts are delivered to you absolutely bent over. The vellum is bent because presumably it's been against his leg. Um, and opening this for the first time and seeing pencil hieroglyphs drawn uh, by an Oxonian in the 1630s middle of Egypt was quite an extraordinary experience when I first stumbled across that. So, in the early 18th century, to take another scientific name, Sir Hans Sloane in London, rapidly becoming one of the major figures of the London science scene, was prompted by the paleographer Humphrey Wanley, who had, of course, just walked out of his job in the Bodleian and gone to London to find employee with Sloane. Um, Wanley prompted him to consider donating his duplicates to the Bodleian Library, and he did. Most of these, as we might expect, were medical, scientific, and genre. My own attempts to track down this until quite recently forgotten population in the Bodleian have revealed the accidental presence in the Bodleian today and since the early 18th century of chunks of the otherwise lost libraries of several notable London Fellows of the Royal Society in the period. Sloan appears to have swallowed whole chunks of the libraries of, for instance, Theodore Hark, Francis Lodwick, and most significantly, Robert Hooke and much of what he spat out found its way to the Bodleian. Um, to give you some sense of numbers here, um, I've tracked down, I think, almost a 1,000 Sloan books in the Bodleian, and I have good reason to believe that can be only half. And there's a big London project up now that tries to get these books. You can tell a Sloan book because it has a little alphanumeric code on it. Well, in terms of science, I'll mention here only another chance finding I made here, which I, I rather like. Um, a few years ago, I, I picked up a book. I, I think it's in the Jura sequence. So it might be in Med. Jura and Med are where you dump all sorts of stuff in this period if you, if you can't find out where to put it. And I opened a tiny pamphlet by an almost uh, forgotten French astronomer called Payen. And he wrote a little 1666 book on a peculiar astronomical phenomenon called the horizontal eclipse. And this is where you see the sun and the, the eclipsing sun and the eclipsed moon um, opposite each other on the horizon, an apparently impossible astronomical effect that happens because atmospheric refraction bends them up into view. And one of these happened in 1666. They're quite rare. 
And this Frenchman wrote a little work about it, and he sent it to Robert Hooke in London. And he enclosed with it a nice manuscript letter to Hooke saying, Dear Hooke, you're terribly wonderful. What do you think of my little work on astronomy? Because it was known that Robert Hooke was one of the only people who was interested in this effect. Well, Sloane clearly bought this title, along with many others, from Robert Hooke's library when it was auctioned upon his death. And then his librarians chucked it out as a duplicate. It found its way into Wanley's hands. It then found its way to the Bodleian. And there it slept for centuries. And the irony is that it wasn't a duplicate at all. They just made a mistake. It is one of the only surviving copies. And it's sitting there with the presentation letter to Hooke still inside the printed book. And again, I opened this a few years ago and, and had a double take at what I'd seen. An example that, that Sloane's librarians were dealing with so many thousands of books that they were throwing out all sorts of things that today would be regarded as, as priceless objects. But my favorite figure of the time, and one that I'll conclude on, I think, um, in terms of the relationship between scholarship and science, and indeed of Oxford and London in the period, um, is one of my heroes, Bodley's librarian of the time, um, Thomas Hyde, who lived from 1636 to 1703. So he is, in fact, an almost exact contemporary of Hooke, who's 1605 to, um, sorry, 1635 to 1703. This man was one of the greatest Orientalists of his time, and you can see him because his portrait currently hangs above the cash register in the Bodleian shop, an inglorious terminus. If you look very carefully at him, he's holding a scroll, um, not with um, Persian or Arabic or Hebrew on it, which is what one would expect from his various roles, but with Chinese. And we're having a crack at deciphering the characters. They're rather badly drawn, but one of them is certainly the character for antiquity, which uh, is, is a nice one for a librarian whose own interests were in the reconnection of ancient religions. Well, Hyde has had a very bad press uh, he resigned in depression in April 1701, a fact that's recorded on his portrait, which I rather like. And to the criticism that the library had not acquired enough books under his watch, Hyde complained that the purchasing power of his library in the period had been ruined by the university's expenditure over the building of the elaboratory. Again, that is the Ashmolean Museum. Nevertheless, Hyde was a scholar of extraordinary versatility and application, even by the standards of his day. He published what became the standard organizing tool for all Western libraries for a period, the 1674 Bodleian Catalogue. But he also published technical works on Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and even attempts at Chinese. For a time, he held simultaneously the Laudian Chair of Arabic, the Regis Chair of Hebrew, and Bodley's librarianship. He corresponded extensively with the merchant and scholar of Malay, Thomas Bowery, and he also corresponded extensively with Elias Ashmole, and Robert Boyle, the chemist, as well as the London statesman and scientist Sir Joseph Williamson, Sir Hans Sloane, who we've heard about, and also John Summers, the Baron of Evesham, the man to whom Hyde dedicated his landmark Historia Religionis Veterum Persarum, his classic text on um, ancient Persian religion. Incidentally, it has one of the very earliest depictions of cuneiform in it. I found a letter recently from Hyde to Edmund Halley in the Royal Society in which Halley writes to him as secretary and he says, Oi, Hyde, expert on strange languages, what do you make of this inscription that, that our man in, in has sent back to us from the Middle East? And Hyde, the, the world expert on odd scripts at this point, writes back and says, Nice one, uh, Edmund, but that's not a language. 
uh, one of the only times I've seen Hyde, he just said, he said, this is clearly just decoration, isn't it? Now, the last three men I mentioned in that list, though, Williamson, Sloan, John Summers, these three men uh, were all presidents of the Royal Society in their time. And Hyde's earlier correspondence with Boyle shows that Hyde acted as Boyle's expert consultant in matters to do with oriental chemistry, alchemy, and botany. And Hyde's letters to Boyle were recently displayed for this reason by the Royal Society itself in their current exhibition on Arabic influences on Western science. Hyde's Orientalism, I noted, even extended to China, for in 1687, the Bodleian was visited by a young Chinaman, Shen Futsong, who had mastered enough Latin on the journey from China to be able to communicate with Hyde. And for a few weeks, they conversed about sinological matters, and Hyde attempted to learn some Chinese. Shen also helped Hyde finally to catalogue the Chinese books in Oxford, scribing in three columns, still visible today, the book's title in Chinese characters, a Romanized vocalization, and then a Latin translation. And if we look in the Bodleian accounts, Shen is paid six pounds over the summer of 1687 for his efforts, which is a sizable sum of money. After Shen left Oxford and then London for Lisbon, Hyde and Shen corresponded, and their letters, or Shen's letters to Hyde at least, are preserved among Hyde's papers, ironically now in the Sloan manuscripts in London, and not upstairs where they ought to be. These, perhaps the most remarkable of Oxford letters from the period, show Hyde's intense interest in Chinese religious and cultural practices, but also his interest in Chinese language, mensuration, counting, including diagrams of the abacus, calendrical practices, gardening, and even Hyde's own personal obsession, board games. There's a lovely passage in one of Hyde's Latin books on Oriental board games in which he said, I was taught how to play this game by my Chinese friend Shin, and we sat and played it. So clearly upstairs, or maybe in Queen's College where they were, they, <laughs> they played an oriental board game together, which is a lovely idea. Hyde had established a catalogue for the Bodleian's printed collections. But for the manuscript collections of the library, the final decade of the century saw an even bolder venture, orchestrated by Edward Bernard. Now, Edward Bernard was another eclectic, being both an orientalist and a mathematician of distinction. He deputed for Wren and eventually succeeded him as the civilian professor of astronomy, holding the chair from 1673 to 91, when it went to the Scotsman David Gregory. Indeed, Bernard took up the civilian chair in Oxford and a fellowship of the Royal Society in London on the same day. Although not really an active member of the London Society, Bernard nevertheless published many papers on ancient astronomy in the philosophical transactions. But Bernard also kept up philological and bibliographical work at Oxford. His work on ancient weights and measures, an area in which Hyde also published, appeared originally as an appendix to Edward Pocock, um, Edward Pocock the Arabist, um, his commentary on Hosea, which he publishes in 1685. Interestingly, that 1688 republication of it, the appendix is Hyde's work on Chinese weights and measures which is almost never read today, which is a tiny Latin work in which he collates all the material you could find in the West about Chinese weights and measures. But he then says, but I wouldn't trust Jesuits if I were you. Um, I've been talking to my London merchant friends, and they've sold me these merchant vocabularies that they use when they go out and they trade in Canton. Hyde later sold um, a couple of these vocabularies to the Bodleian, and they're in the Hyde manuscripts. And again, just like the Egyptian hieroglyph uh, 
manuscript I told you about, these are remarkable things to hold because they are the, the things that English merchants faced, the Chinese merchants, and spoke of them. And they have all these sort of strange instructions in them, lots of numbers and things like, sir, you are a ninny, or I must now vomit, or too expensive, or whatever. And th these are practical things in the dialect of what we would think of as the Fujian province now. Um, interestingly, in that work as well, Hyde also says, I've changed my mind because I've recently been poring over Chinese maps. The Selden map, I wonder? Well, the thing to remember about Bernard then, um, particularly alongside Hyde, um, is his eclecticism. He is a civilian professor, but he produces the object that becomes the standard National Union catalogue for the next century and beyond, still crucial today as a tool of provenance studies of manuscripts. Um, Bernard's catalogue, indeed, is a kind of private historical manuscripts commission over a century and a half before the HMC was set up. And although the extent of his true involvement with it is a matter of debate today, Bernard's varied career once again exemplifies the overlap at this crucial point in Oxford before the decline of interest in Oriental languages between, on the one hand, the concerns of the technical astronomer and, on the other, those of the philologist of remote or defunct languages. I don't have time today to extend this analysis beyond the turn of the century, but I want to conclude on a number of more general observations. The first is the obvious point that many of the London activities that we think of as typifying the scientific revolution were continuations or reconfigurations of particularly Oxford practices. Um, and when I say particularly Oxford, I don't mean Oxbridge. I'm afraid I do mean Oxford. Um, an awful lot of the Cambridge scientists of the time work pretty much in isolation, Newton being, I, I guess, the classic example. I started on Seth Ward's plans to abstract all Bodleian knowledge and the way in which such plans might be seen to have had partial fruition in Wilkins' essay after the Restoration. That might be an example of progression. But more significantly, we have seen examples of reciprocity. The civilian chairs were founded long before the Restoration and the foundation of the Royal Society, and they contributed in no small way to the mathematical literacy of the scholars who would subsequently place astronomy and geometry so close to the center of British scientific effort. The founding of the Ashmolean itself, opened in 1683, postdates that of the Royal Society in London, which is 1662 formally. But in a sense, it completes and perfects that establishment too. Because the Royal Society, we must remember, was at heart a fee-paying club for gentlemen proposed by gentlemen. It may have generated its own journal, the Philosophical Transactions, still going, but it was not really an educational institution as such. The Ashmolean, conversely, was conceptualized from its origin as a research institute, an academic department that was also a place for the meeting of learned societies, a library, a museum, a laboratory, and an integrated teaching department of a university with far broader canons of access than its London Big Brother. It was also soon in contact with fledgling parallel ventures in Ireland and in Scotland. It's fitting today that the founding collections of the civilian chairs and the Ashmolean Museum have been partially absorbed by the Bodleian Library. But it's also a sign of the shifting nature of the academe and the way we academics implement the necessary divisions between the disciplines that the Bodleian acts as the modern guardian of only parts 
of those early modern establishments. The sciences of astronomy and geometry have now split away for good from their humanistic origins. And the librarian and the museum curator are now quite separate roles. One of the most important jobs, and indeed pleasures, of the modern historian of academic thought and practice is to keep this kind of history ever before the eyes of the modern practitioners of the scientific and even the humanistic disciplines. We sometimes forget how close we once all were. Thank you. <laughs>